Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome, welcome, welcome. You've pressed the buttons that allow you to access the most powerful beasts on this planet, the Manchildian candidates. My name's G-Man. I'm sitting across from the powerful P-Boss. How are you going there, my bro? Excited. Excited to be back, ready to go, my friend. Oh, bud. Back, you say? Where have we been? There's been a slight hiatus, as they're not. <laughs> Do you think anyone will notice? <laughs> not even a bit. No. <laughs> I mean, I've got no real excuse either. We've um, we've been changing occupations in real life. We've been trying to garner one of the finest shows that your ears will ever hear. This one today, mm. and mm. Um, been getting a few little bits of uh, promotion activity too. We've got some propaganda that can be launching very soon. Thanks to the ever powerful and excellent. Gee, I'm saying powerful a lot today, but I'm meaning it. But it, you need it. Sometimes nothing else will suffice. Uh, that's right, man. This is right. But Alice Steele, she's pu- putting together some really uh, great stuff for us, and I'm very excited. By the time this episode drops, by the time you're hearing this, you fantastic folk, you, you'll be seeing the propaganda that we've got put together, and it's a lot of fun. Branded, M- Manchildian branded propaganda. Believe it, folks. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, this program, my man, this is very important to both of us. Huge. We've been talking about this one for a very long time. Ever since a very particular episode of ours that dropped last year, we promised to follow up on a few little things. We did. And this is basically one of our first um, attempts at doing what we say, right? Following up on something. Well, it's a sequel. Yeah. For us, and it's about a sequel. So, interesting. Yeah, exactly. So, would you mind um, telling our dear players at home what we're about to attempt to do this very day? Well, Tax Dodgers, we are going to delve into The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Mm. Um, obviously, again, this is reasonably spillgasmic. Um, what's another word for a, a – you know, we could have a Lucas Gasm here too because he's there, but this is an important film. Um, and, look, we're going to, as we suggested when we did our Raiders episode, we're going to look a little more deeply into, I, you know, the Bat-Guana crazy thinkings of Hitler and his cronies um, whilst exploring this, what I consider to be a masterpiece uh, of a film, G-Man. Mm. And, uh, look, would you mind – Mind if I just uh, began with talking a little bit about The Last Crusade? I think that's incredibly important. Let's get into it. Absolutely, my friend. So, released on the 24th of May in 1989, um, and in the the US, of course, and June to the rest of the world, this wonderful movie, I'm spoiling it here to say that I think it's wonderful, uh, cost just under $50 million to produce. Which in '89, dude, is is a fair fair bunch of spondoolies. Indeed. And comparing directly to Raiders, Raiders came in at just under twenty million. So, um, and this one, my bro, bro, was met with rave reviews from critics and fans, um, and it ended up making purely just in in terms of the box office movie release four hundred and seventy four million dollars worldwide. Count them. Holy tabouli, that's a lot of money, man. Absolutely, my friend. Um, it was it was a big win, uh, which we'll unpack in a moment. It was a big win that uh, <clears throat> the boys needed. Now, Spielberg wanted a widescreen release for the VHS. It kind of always annoyed him that um, at that point in in uh, in 
chronology. VHS release had no widescreen capacity. He pushed hard for that, but he couldn't get it, and he had to wait for Laserdisc. Oh, gee, man. Do you- oh, bless. <laughs> Do you remember oh. the Laserdisc? Dude, I thought we are in the future when that happened. I'm like, oh, what is this? Yeah. And gee, how naff, how wonderful is that? Yeah. Turns out it's false advertising. It wasn't made of lasers at all. No, not a bit. Now, G-Man, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna touch and throw to you during this, during this rant. I mean, mm. bro, how did you feel about Temple of Doom? Because when I say, when I say this one was a win, obviously it comes off relative to, you know, many didn't feel the Temple of Doom was a win. It didn't do as well at the box office. How did you feel about Temple of Doom, my friend? Well, yeah, it's a good question, and I clearly think, and we've stipulated in the past about, I feel like it is, in fact, the weakest of the three, easily, and because it breaks the formula in a way, I think, because, I mean, Kate Capshaw, um, she was somehow instantly annoying. So, you've got <laughs> this, this creature is half of the movie, in a way, and she was pretty annoying. She's a fine actress and an excellent human woman. However, her character was so annoying and she just squealed the whole time. And also another sort of uh, little trope that bothers me is often having a child involved. I mean, as rad a short round is, uh, you've got a whole other dynamic. There can't be this whole other adult thing. He's actually got to take care of a boy. So he's got this sort of lone wolf and cub thing where he's got to look after something, you know, so it's not just him racing around. And the formula, um, the Nazis are gone, and we're not slaying um, indiscriminately people of a very sick ideology. We are slaying brainwashed cultists who are just simple, humble villagers, and it kind of feels dirty. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. look, we've all got brainwashed cultists that we still look on fondly. It's not their fault. <laughs> That's um, right. I would agree with you. However, I have a slight point of differentiation. I thought I thought Short Round was one of the best sidekicks in cinematic history, but I do concur that uh, Old Indy was lucky children's services didn't exist back then. That's right. You did what? Yes. You threw him out of a bloody plane in an inflatable boat? No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you can't have this child anymore. <laughs> yeah, but I agree with you. Fantastic sidekick. He was absolutely rad. You know, like hey, lady, you call him Doctor John. Totally had his back. Cool dude. Who would win? Who would win if you dropped two of Kiyu Kwan's key characters in that era? Mm. Who would win? Do you think Short Round versus Data? Don't answer now. Get 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 onto the social medias. Let us know. I'd love to see yeah. who would win. Short round v data. There is a match I would like to see, my friend. <laughs> oh, dude, we'll place bets. We'll be holding bets later on Twitch, actually. So you get yourself uh, there. <laughs> yes. Um, look, I would agree with you too that a major criticism levelled at. Uh, that particular production was the representation of culture wasn't wasn't fantastic, and uh, that bit in particular probably has not aged well uh, at all. But look, I still loved it. I agree. Out of the three, it's not the one that I'm going to reach for to to throw into the you know DVD player if I'm entertaining friends with cheese and biscuits. Um, it it is it is one that I that I have rewatched and enjoyed more than I thought I would. But we digress. And and moving back to the back to the tangent is that 
it was looked as a, at a real loss for the for Spielberg and Lucas. So they really were intent on making up for that because Temple of Doom, although it made lots of spondoolies, it was universally critically panned and certainly did not bode well with the with the fans. And you touched on it perfectly, G Fresh. It was just it was a bit of a tonal shift. Um Mm. So Spielberg and Lucas really wanted to make up for the for the mixed reception that Temple of Doom um, received. So Lucas and Spielberg decided that they wanted to return to the original tone and go out with a bang. And that's a point that we do have to address, the, the elephantitis in the room. This was supposed to be the last movie in the series, hence the, you know, the tricky name. And for mine, G Fresh, what a way, what a way it would have been to sign off. And look, let's get this out of the way early. Uh, do we do we mention the Crystal Skull? We kind of have to. Um, do we mention the fact that there is another one in production? Bro, help me. What do we think? Mm. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. And you know, we discussed it a little bit in the Raiders thing too. And upon announcement of. Um, a sequel after all this time, after The Last Crusade, when in fact they literally rode off into the sunset at the end of this film, yeah. which is the most perfect sign-off for a film called The Last Crusade, yeah. as you just beautifully, beautifully told. Um, yeah, I was very excited. But then, of course, oh, then you get this amazing big flopper, you know, and it's, and it's a flopper. Yeah. It's not, it's not anyone's favourite film. It's definitely not anyone's favourite indie film. And it's hard-pressed to make a 5 rating out of 10 for anyone, I think, to be honest with you. Yeah. And the news of a new one, oh, gee, I just don't have much faith in it. Despite the fact that I'm, oh, I will probably wander my sorry little ass to the cinema and watch that. Yes. Because it's an indie film. Yeah. Um, hopefully they can redeem it. But, you know, I've been... Bitten, dude. I've been, I've been burned. Yeah, I've been burned. Yeah, you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. You feeling that? Yeah. And I think in terms of talking about the sequel that's in production as well, um, it's 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 a tricky one for me. I'm not exactly sure if that's the move. Um, bearing in mind that Harrison's, you know, he's eighty. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess with the Crystal Skull, they were trying to do the. Um, Transition and maybe sort of transition the legacy across to Shia LaDouche. I don't know if that, uh, LaBeouf, sorry. I don't know if that was the intent, but they certainly didn't land that. I just don't know how he's going to go at 80 years old, man. Bearing in mind, old mate, he, he had a fair bit of trouble just getting through the Star, you know, Star Wars. Well, you know, from what I understand, I heard recently that, you know, during the production of this, and it wasn't even that far into the production of the new one, um, Harrison Ford has actually broken his arm. Right. As well, I mean, these bones are brittle, my bro. They're like chalk now. Yeah. And the thing is, too, I understood that they still had to keep filming, but they couldn't really use much of him. So they're actually going to employ the old school technique that we've come to know from The Mandalorian, right? When we did that episode about deep fake and going to replace his face digitally with his own face wow. as well. So it's sort of like, oh, man, it's almost at a point where you can make Indiana Jones films forever, isn't it? And you don't actually even need Harrison. Yeah, look, there's a there's a good safety clause here, folks. It's it's a warning. You know, if you spend too much time with Callistas, there is a direct reduction of calcium in your bones. You've got to be careful, right? 
<laughs> I think that's what that is, isn't it? Yeah. He's got a bad case of Callista. That's right. <laughs> um, now, here we go. Let's move on to the story of the story. So, Lucas suggests that the movie um, should be set in a haunted mansion with a ghost providing the location of a fountain of youth in Africa. Goodness me. What? That's a vastly different, yeah, really? You know. That, okay, okay. I'm with you. Kind of. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> you got to, you know, I know. Sometimes you just got to kick that cerebral Sharon around and see what happens. But <laughs> yeah. Spielberg did not like it. He found that it was too similar to another, you know, paranormal movie that he'd recently made in a house called Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Um However, Lucas went ahead anyway and created an eight-page treatment called Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. Right. So this this basically saw Indiana Jones encounter a ghost in Scotland uh, before going after the Fountain of Youth in Africa against a tribe of cannibals. So... Um, Look, you know, he's kicking some ideas around, bro, bro. And as you'll see through this transition, some of it, some of it obviously starts to to stick. Um, obviously, you know, the Scotland element did remain in the in the later script uh, that was filmed. Um, Spielberg brought on Chris Columbus to to assist with the writing. No, my friend, he did not have a you know Ouija board and was not uh, communing <laughs> with the old. Uh, explorer slash slave driver. Um, It was Chris Columbus who'd written such wonderful exemplars of films as Gremlins, Goonies, um, and young Sherlock Holmes. Oh, good stable. Yeah, totally. Columbus added characters and brought back the Nazis. Nazis, G-Man. There we are. There we are. The foe you can indiscriminately slay and not feel bad about it. No sympathy required. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Clayton's foe. It's the it's the enemy that you can slay without feeling like you're slaying an enemy. That's right. Oh, gosh, my arms are sore from all that slaying. Yes. Lovely. Is that what they call it now? I believe it is. Uh, <laughs> and so what happened was Columbus refined the script and the crew actually went out and started scouting locations in Africa. Now, this was halted due to Spielberg and Lucas, who started to have concerns of negative depictions of uh, Africans. Now, in my research, it was difficult to determine if that this had come from feedback from Temple of Doom. But I would I would discern that yes, this was probably the way. They also felt that the script was just getting a bit too fantastical. Mm. Now, an important point here, my bro, bro. Spielberg suggested introducing Indy's father Henry, and that the father son relationship would serve as a great metaphor for the search for the artifact, at which at this point, reminding was the Fountain of Youth. He later changed the artifact to the Holy Grail and he brought on the additional writing skills of Menno Mays, who wrote The Colour Purple. So the many alternative endings were discussed, man. Crazy stuff like fighting demons, um, Henry ascending to heaven. But the good thing at this stage, my bro, was possibly my favourite bit of this movie. At this point, a prologue was introduced. G-Man... I had forgotten just how good the prologue was. Yes. Yes, man. Like, upon re-watching it for this program. Oh, dude. I almost forgot about it. Me too, brother. 
almost completely. And then it starts in, you know, whatever, 1912 or something, whenever it is. Um, and River Phoenix, oh. the young River Phoenix and the height of his career playing the young Indy. Oh, my God. Dude, he's an absolute legend. He got Unbelievable. the idiosyncrasies down, didn't he? He was a young indie, just perfectly, man. He really was. And just the, the tidbits of information of the origin, you know? That's right. We find out why he's scared of snakes. We find out even the little scar on the chin, bro. That's right. Yes, I was know. just medicinal. Um. Mm. So Spielberg introduced another writer, Jeffrey Bohm, who wrote Inner Space, oh, and the right. final script essentially took shape. Bohm suggested that Indy find Henry halfway through the movie, not at the end, mm. um, and also put the powerful suggestion through that, spoilers everyone, but you've had 30 years, <laughs> that, the, that they should actually not retain the grail. They should lose it. Yeah, interesting. Thus, this yes, thus the story evolved and became more about Indy's search for his own identity, which is a really strong subtext throughout the whole story. Mm. Mm. The uh, the motorcycle scene was added in post production and shot at Skywalker Ranch. Wow, hey, not even yeah. Indy Ridge. Okay, no, 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 yeah. Skywalker Ranch, my bro. Yeah. Um, Spielberg and Lucas wanted to also to to send this series off in, in a wonderful way. And so the, the scene um, where, the, where the gentleman ride off into the sun was actually shot afterwards in post um, in Texas. Amazing. Gee, man, I can't help it, but that scene would have been the perfect send-off. Uh-huh. I know. I, like, that's the cliche, isn't it? We talk about tropes in some of our episodes and what more of a beautiful ending and trope is for the heroes to be riding off into the sunset, man. And there it was, right? There it was. Yeah. And it also, it also fits with the motif that we discussed in the Raiders episode of the agents of God, the, the righteous um, heroes moving, you know, the sun being the representation of God. So the agents of God moving in a virtuous direction. Um, yeah. Gosh. Uh, yeah. I, I just, I can't, I'm going to try not to do too many old man rants about uh, how that just would have been the perfect send off. My bro, bro, we move quickly on to casting. Um, Harrison Ford, of course, this is peak Harrison Ford, you'd have to say. 100%, man. Yeah, he'd already been um, Han Solo three times, and he'd been Indiana Jones twice already too. So he was killing it, man. He was He was arguably, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people, I was watching a documentary the other day talking about the history of, of, of cinema and, you know, suggesting that Harrison Ford was the biggest male star for more than, more than a couple of decades. Like, he, he was just on top, couldn't put a foot wrong. Yeah. So, of course, he was superbly happy with the direction of the story and was absolutely on board. We have uh, we have River Phoenix. God rest the late River Phoenix. Um, we've already gushed about that that young man. Harrison actually recommended him for the role because I'm not sure if you re remember um, G Fresh, but he played his son in the film The Mosquito Coast. Oh, this is right. Yeah, exactly. Which I'd forgotten. Um, and you know, Harrison said, "Look, not only not only is he just an incredible actor, but he looks like me, and he's the kind of dude that will get me down pat, so to speak." Yeah. yeah. So the success—it's worth 
pointing out that the success of the prologue actually led to three seasons of the television show, The Young Indiana, The Young Indie Chronicles, um, which was kind of a cool show. Like I, I watched them. Certainly yeah, serviceable, but I, I think that was not necessarily um, a benefit that they could have seen coming. It was just the prologue and River Phoenix just brought brought this sort of stuff to life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, my bros, Sean Connery. Um, Connery plays a professor of medieval literature um, who essentially cares more about the grail than his own son. Um Spielberg always had Connery in mind and wanted his Bond. Um, it's worth a side note here just to gush that Spielberg actually was really keen on directing a Bond movie, um, but just couldn't sort of couldn't get timetables to match. Can you imagine a Bond movie directed by Spielberg? Dude, yes, I can. And I reckon that whatever that would be and whoever is cast would be Probably my favourite Bond film. You know, seriously? Unreal. You know, they're still making Bond films. He might have a chance, man. You know, I hope that happens. He puts his hand up fully and says, it's my turn. I would watch that, my friend. I would even return to cinemas and sit amongst, you know, flatulent, annoying people chewing popcorn and talking. I'd, I'd, I'd do it. Yeah. My thing is that, as we gushed in the Raiders episode and kind of will definitely gush in this episode... Arguably one of the best directors of action. I'd love to mm. see him get his hands on a Bond. Anyway. Big time. And so he got James Bond, basically, is what you're saying. Like, he got, yeah, there it is. He got his own Bond, my bro. Um, we digress. Now, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Connery initially turned the role down. Um, and he actually felt that it was due to the age gap. So <laughs> okay, I believe yeah. he was only about 12 years older than Harrison Ford. Um, but as the as the script sort of you know was was evolving, um, an interesting point is that Connery is an avid student of history himself, so he was on board, and he actually made a few suggestions, um, and and the aspects of the character were were revised. I have to point out here he improvised the line. She talks in her sleep. <laughs> yeah, great. Oh, what a scene that whole thing is too. It just it just added um it's the scene it's when she's saying farewell, they're both roped into the chairs, you know, back to back. Oh, that's right. And they're in the castle. Yeah, yeah. Just was so layered. It just, you know, put another layer to it. Um and have uh, you know, Lucas Spielberg, the whole the whole cast were just like Brilliant. Amazing. So, yeah, just a little ad lib and just what was left in. We have Alison Doody as Dr. Elsa Schneider. Um, she started her career as a model um, before her breakthrough role in View to a Kill. Now, dude, for mine, she's the only element of this that is just meh. It's got nothing to do with the fact that she's a female. I'm referring purely just to her acting skills. And I think it's also very tough when you're talking about this acting lineup. Um, you're really talking about a whole bunch of A-grade career actors, um, arguably the peak of their game. And here we have Alison Doody, who was you know, not, not an actress by trade. So I don't know how you felt, but for me, she was just meh, mm. adequate. Yeah. No no Marion Ravenwood is I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think just a vastly different character though too. Perhaps give her a Ravenwood-esque sort of vibe. Marion Ravenwood's a t- 
half cookie, man. You know, drinking folk under the tables and shooting Nazis indiscriminately. Whereas Alison Doody's character is a sympathizer, if not a Nazi herself, which we'll discuss a little bit later on. Will indeed. But yeah, I've not even really thought about her not really pulling her weight potentially. But, you know, I see what you're saying. I quite liked her. You know, to be honest with you, but yeah. Then, of course, we have, speaking of, you know, top-tier acting, we have Denim Elliott returning oh. as Dr. Marcus Brody. Mm-hmm. Um, herein, maybe, again, I have a slight gripe, but I will refer to that uh, at the end of the episode. John Reese davies as Sala. Um, a wonderful performance, but we were having a bit of a chuckle before this recording. At look, in this era, there just seemed to be a thing in America where you, you know, you hired uh, an English actor to play a culture other than his own. Yeah, but you find this kind of common, which is interesting as well, as you just pointed out, because John Rhys Davies and Catherine Zeta Jones are both Welsh, yes, of descent, right? So they always get cast as either Spaniards or. Folk from the Middle yeah. East. <laughs> it's a, it's a funny thing. You could probably find someone from the Middle East to do this role. You know? Yes. But anyway, anyway. Absolutely. We have Julian Glover as the nefarious Walter Donovan. Oh, he's good. And he? look again, spoilers. He secretly works for the Nazis and desires uh, immortality. Again, another actor who I would go, he wasn't amazing, but he did his part. Now, he played, did you recognize him? G Fresh, did you look at him and say, I think I've seen this individual before? Which one? Who? Julian Glover. Julian Glover. Yeah, yeah, I think so. He played General Veers in Empire Strikes Back. Oh my God. The yes. ill fated <laughs> General Veers. My goodness, you're absolutely right. Yeah, Why didn't so I know that? I think you did, but I just had to look it up, but I was like, I know his face, but he's not exactly yeah. a regular acty dude that jumps out at me. We have Kavork Malakian, who absolutely is a bit of a standout um, difference to what we were saying before in terms of English people playing beyond their culture. Um, we have Kavork Malakian, who um, is playing within his culture as Kasim, the leader of the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword. Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword. Um, he impressed Steven Spielberg in his wonderful role in Midnight Express. I loved him. He wasn't. He wasn't in it enough for me. He was fantastic. You know. My soul is prepared. How's yours? <laughs> it's a great point. Um, and finally, I, I would say a casting uh, choice of note was the was the wonderful Robert Edison, who played the Grail Knight. And a interesting side note for Mr. Edison was that he had a long history of stage, um, mostly a stage guy trading the boards, did a bit of television and not a lot of movies. And he really lacked confidence on the day of shooting, apparently. He kept saying, how am I doing? Am I okay? Um, obviously, the answer was unequivocally, yes, you're doing wonderfully. Like- Dude, shut up. You are killing it. Like, just keep going. <laughs> yeah. You are killing it. Yeah. <laughs> you are rocking. Um, and that is, that is my friend, the, the history of the movie and the story of the story, my brother. Oh, man, thank you for filling that in. What, what I, the takeaways from there, what I thought was um, what I find really intriguing, and I'm so glad, I'm so glad that the changes happened. But it wouldn't be the same if we were going to see a film called Indiana Jones and the Monkey King. Just wouldn't. You know, I don't know, it sounds, 
I mean, it'd be well explained, surely, and probably really rad, but uh, it just doesn't have the same ring, man. It sounds a bit dumb. Also, also, it would have been challenging for me because I really loved the TV series Monkey yeah, in that era. Exactly, exactly, and, and dude. For me, he's the Monkey King, and yep. you're going to really struggle to kick his ass. You know what I mean? So I know. <laughs> I know, man. I know. So yeah, exactly. That will really maybe that might have had something to do with it as well. Because seriously, that wouldn't work for me. Really, wouldn't it? And we probably wouldn't be doing this potty right now. We'd be putting it in the same bucket as um, you yeah, know, crystal, crystal skull, ball of yeah, bile, yeah, crystal ball of yeah. buttholes. Yeah. I know, yeah. it's not pleasant. Well, thanks, man. And look, the thing I'd like to talk a little bit now, if you wouldn't mind, about the uh, well, it's really the. We call it a MacGuffin or the, uh, you know, the real, the real driving force behind this film. And you mentioned before about the original relic or concept was that Indy was going to be seeking the Fountain of Youth. Now, we got something kind of similar and, you know, I'm going to go into it a little bit here. Of course, it's the Holy Grail. Now, what's wonderful about this whole thing is that um, PBOS and I don't, well, I might be speaking for you here, but don't really align with any form of theology, but find this this sort of relic, as you might have known from us um, really breaking down the Ark of the Covenant um, in, in our past episodes, that these things oh. are fascinating. You don't spend 2,000 years with a sacred relic of the Lord that you just can't bloody find and for it not to be intriguing, you know. There are people looking for this now. It's just bizarre. You're going to have to bear with me just for a sec, though, because this is Dude, I'm, a hell of a tale. Kidding? This is a hell of a tale. All right, so Drive the bus, son. I'm just going to be sitting down the back. Yeah, I'm going to do my best. All right. All right. So what I'm going to discuss right now is the Grail itself, what it is thought to have been, and where it's thought to have gone after Christ's death, where what we believe as history turned into myth, um, an Arthurian tale, of the person who got close to finding it, or so they think, sacred places oh. where it's thought to have been and where it might actually be now. And there may even be a little bit of uh, Templar intrigue chucked in at the end there for good measure. <laughs> so, all right. So as you said, the Fountain of Youth, right? So what the Holy Grail is thought to do is it will bring eternal youth or eternal life. Enlightenment, it can heal the sick, and it can only be approached by that of or those of a pure heart. It's thought physically to be many, many things, which is where it gets confusing in identifying and actually finding us. Um, it's thought to be a jewel-encrusted chalice or goblet that they represent that uh, in the film, the one that um, Elsa picks for Donovan, or a simple bowl or cup and that made of wood, which sort of makes sense being the cup of the carpenter, etc., um, and historically, the whole notion is that the Grail sort of is a pagan cauldron, right, which symbolizes fertility. And it's just another example of pagans um, having their symbology pinched by the Christians, you know, maybe because they couldn't <laughs> do it by themselves and come up with their own stuff or just were trying to abolish this symbology altogether as well. Look, they just didn't have any good lawyers that understood IP, you know. <laughs> That's right. It's like, yeah, I know. Stop pinching our stuff, please. For God's yeah, sake. Yeah. Anyway, um, and we'll also, I'll also discuss a little bit later, or maybe I won't, haven't decided, whether Ooh. the whole notion of a grail right, <laughs> is a symbolic idea and not, in fact, a physical object at all. Wow. But in fact, you know, like the Da Vinci Code opens up in Dan Brown's book with it probably maybe being a sacred bloodline, yes. et cetera, et cetera, Love it. which is also a great tale. But this is what we think we know. This is what I like. And this cup 
or bowl or plate was used by Joseph of Arimathea, um, which was Jesus' great uncle, to catch his blood, uh, the blood of Christ, that is, after being stabbed by the spear of destiny whilst he was crucified upon the cross. And Arimathea, meaning wonderfully, I love it in Aramaic, is uh, lion dead to the Lord is his last name. What a bold last name that is, Arimathea. Wow. Um, and so it's also potentially the vessel in which Jesus ate from or drank from at the Last Supper. Um, it could be either, it could be both. It's one of those things. So after taking responsibility for Jesus' burial, um, Joseph was approached by the archangel Raphael and told to take the grail to a far distant and sacred isle far in the west to hide it as a sacred object. And so he did. Take it, he did. And Joseph hopped on a boat and took it along an old tin trade route all the way to Cornwall. Wow. Um, and this was interesting because he'd done this. Joseph had, in fact, done this a bunch of times because he was not a peasant, this guy. He was a merchant. He was a wealthy dude. So he'd done this tin trade route quite a few times, and uh, there was a lot of good minerals going on in England at the time, um, which I still believe that the locals were, in fact, calling it Albion, which was England which is quite a lovely name, which, in fact, I learned was um, Albion is one of the oldest words in the English language, which is kind of crazy, isn't it? Anyway, yeah. So anyway, he travelled all the way to Cornwall, where he had some friends of his, and then he travelled northeast Glastonbury Way in the county of Somerset to to hide this particular artefact. And, you know, because this guy was wealthy, it may, in fact... It could very well have been a jewel-encrusted chalice. This is the thing. It's like, gee, the only thing I've got to catch the blood is my own cup. Oh, it's happened to be jewels. You know, it could very well be this. Absolutely. So Glastonbury, um, as it is now, it's three hills um, known as Tors rising from the plains. But when Joseph arrived, these plains were in fact flooded. This was some time ago. This is 37 AD is what we're talking about. And they were flooded, and so the hills were islands, and hence the island of Avalon, which is really a lovely thing, and we talk about Arthurian in just the tickaroo. Um, Glastonbury's been known to be, and is still known as a very, very sacred and spiritual place to lots of theologies, um, but mainly... Great. Great you know, rock festivals too. Hundred percent, and look, still worship, man. Just worship, worshiping the rock gods, right? That's right, absolutely rad. And it's a thought to be a place like the pagans thought this, and hence, you know, Christian ideology sort of adopted it too. That a place where realms blend. This is where heaven meets uh, earth, etc. The, 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 the veil is thin. 100%, man. 100%. And so, when searching for a place, for a location, Joseph uh, couldn't really find one, so he had a staff and he thrust it into the ground, requesting the Lord to give him a sign. Where should I bury this thing or place this thing? And, as he did so, um, his staff, in fact, came to life and flourished into this magnificent flowering hawthorn tree, which is known as the Holy Thorn. And it's literally there today in the Glastonbury Abbey. And it flowers without fail every single year, crazily and obviously symbolically on Christmas and Easter without fail. And at Christmas time, every single year, what they do is they snip a little bit of it off and they send it to the Queen. The Queen is old, man. How many of these things has she got? She's got like a whole room of thorns. Like, oh, thanks for another thorn, guys. That's just great. Chuck it in the pile, you know. Well, you know, she's a prickly old bird. You see, I know. Not just by temperament, by literal properties, man. I know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this is where Joseph is said to have buried the grail. 
Um, wow. And so at the Glastonbury tour, uh, there's the Chalice Well Spring. Chalice, obviously, we're talking, you know, it's, it's the symbology is crazy here, man. It is. It really is. There are two springs that flow at the Chalice Well Spring. One of them flows red. My man, oh, and they're dude. like, this is the blood of Christ sort of thing. Um, and the other one flows white. And, you know, this was also symbolic for the pagans as well, being, you know, that is the mountain's uh, feminine cycle. In fact, yep. it's not the blood of Christ, it's fertility. Yep. However, what we've sort of discovered is that there is a bit of an iron deposit there, and iron, when, you know, saturated like this, comes out red. Yep. Yep. So and calcite is the other one that makes the other, char- um, the other spring white. So once again, it's totally revered by the pagans and it seems to be mildly adopted, you know. Um, so in the 13th century, right, it's a bit of time passes here and I'll discuss why, you know, not much is written here. This is called the Dark Ages and no one wrote down a damn thing. They really didn't. They didn't do it. They really weren't big on their creative, expressive writing, were they? Nah. They weren't much into it, man. They did not have uh, Unit uh, 4 of symbols and <laughs> mythology in their writing course. They didn't. In the 13th century, 30 monks, right, this is a long time away, as I said, 1,300 years, um, descended into this tour because it was peppered with tunnels. And they descended into there to discover the Grail, where they'd been told that it was. And so three of the monks, three of the 30 monks returned, right? One of them, for lack of a better politically correct word, was struck dumb, is what they say, and the other two were completely deranged, so they have no idea what happened down Wow. There. 27 of them didn't come back. The other three were incapacitated by something. And this has got a lot to do with the idea that, hell, maybe they did find it somewhat, and they weren't virtuous enough, so it sent them crazy. It's nuts. And so no body of Joseph was ever discovered either, by the way, which is one of those things, man. So this is where it gets really confusing because it might have been stolen, it might have been moved from the Glastonbury catacombs long before and taken to the castle of the Fisher King. Um, I'll talk about him in a sec as a character That's as great. well. So I'm moving at rapid pace here, man, but it's just so damn exciting. I get excited by Me this. Me too. Um, and so this is where the vague history of what we know turns into myth and literature, and then that becomes myth as well. Yes. So... King Arthur, my brother. The King Arthur. This is he's an amazing character that I think everyone is fairly sure they know of King Arthur, and it's just wonderful. But he's first mentioned as a character, um, or a person, in the 12th century, 1138 AD to be precise, in the works of Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britanniae, which is the history of the kings of Britain. Wow. Thought to be, if historical, right? He was not a king at all, but, in fact, a ward of the Britons. A protector in the 5th or 6th century defending against the Saxon invaders. Um, And it's hard to refute, really, because, as I said before, there's no written history because they were absolutely plunged into the Dark Ages. No written history in that amount of time. It's phenomenal. Whether it was destroyed, right, by certain later... Kings or popes, or actually wasn't even done, that's hard to know. But um, the 12th century French writer, Chrétien de Troyes, took the liberty of expanding on Monmouth's story by adding the characters Lancelot, and he, in fact, was the first one to include the Holy Grail into the Arthurian legend in the first place. Wow. Um, and this is, these are the tales that we're obviously most familiar with, you know, the whole Lancelot thing and the round table. And what's interesting is Arthur, the word Arthur, if we're talking about 
the language before, like, because English man is Anglish after the Saxon and Angles invaded, right? So there was another language beforehand. Yes. Um, but it translates into the great bear. And so Arthur could very well be a title or a nickname, you know, for anyone. It might not have been just one guy. It's kind of like the Zorro thing or the Phantom. The mantle gets passed on. So he is now the Arthur, you know. It's really quite lovely. Yes. Now, we're talking about a physical place now. Tintagel is a town in the southwest of England, and it's the location of Arthur's birth, near a bay that is known today and was then as Merlin's Cave. It's still known as Merlin's Cave. Merlin, of course, the wizard and the orchestrator of Arthur's birth. And if you want to know more about that, check it out, because it's absolutely rad. Bit of deception, but... Here we go. We've got the king of the Britons, you know. Um, In 1988 in Tintagel Castle, um, a drain cover slab was unearthed that contains an inscription on it, right? An inscription. The only piece of actual writing that they've found from the 5th century in England, and it says Artognu made this, and... Some archaeologists and a lot of scholars alike are assuming that this is a reference to the Arthur. He was, in fact, absolutely there in this time. It's a very interesting thing for me because I'd I'd read some historical tomes and also I believe it's it's represented in in a film in that because we're looking at the the dissolution – of the Roman Empire, many many dates sort of put it at about 476. Mm. Um, however, there were still regions or provinces that were, were still strong and held. But you know, the empire, as we know, were, was gone. Um, and there's some some suggestions that that Arthur was actually either you know an ex Robert Roman military leader. Um, that as the as the empire dissolved obviously a lot more trouble and mm. dude they've explored that in some of the Arthurian films haven't they yeah they like, really have yeah. that was that was an interesting to to sort of say he's a son of Rome um, or he's almost a Ronin a samurai like he, he yeah. doesn't he doesn't have a master anymore but he still feels like he needs to pr- protect his his area yeah, fascinating it. dude it is isn't it it really really is and like I'm inclined to believe that the Arthur um, I've decided to call him that instead, Good. outside of the literary idea. In fact, Arthur Actual? <laughs> Arthur Actual, I believe so. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, there's no reason to believe that, you know, it's kind of like there's a, you know, the old story of a Japanese um, soldier who was on an island during World War Two. Exactly. been fighting that war for 30 years, not knowing the war had ended. Yes. But he was still hiding in the, you know, he was still doing his duty. Well, the Roman Empire was so expansive. Oh, dude. You know, that, that, that there, were, there were regions that just held out for decades after, 50 years, yeah. 100 years. But yes, the empire that we knew, the unified empire, was gone. So, and sorry to interrupt, a, but I was just no, interested no. in that idea. That's great. Right. But try sending a message to the end of the frontier from Rome all the way to, you know, northern England. Oh, mate. Dude, that takes a long time. Yeah. And, you know, your legs are going to get tired. Got there. They really are, man. Poor little pigeons <laughs> before they could fly. Yeah. Um, and so this is where the vague history that we know gets even further diluted uh, into myth. And this is what, what I thickens, love. Gee, That's man. right, indeed. And this is where, you know, the real fantasy side of it comes on. And this is where Monty Python's. Um, you know, Holy Grail takes over and it's just, it's fantastic. But 
The Knights of the Round Table, yeah, there's actually, it's conjecture as to how many knights there actually were. There's some reports and some ideas that there were hundreds and hundreds of knights, or boil it down to just 12, right? The 12 of which are, we mostly know are a bit more um, familiar with. Hard not to see the Christian analogy there, the 12 knights, the 12 apostles. Exactly, my bro. What I was about to say, nailed on the head. And the 12 that feature most prominently are the ones that are in um, Detroit's tale, who introduced, you know, Lancelot, etc. So it's Harpo, Chico... Pillow and <laughs> yeah, hello. hello and sleepy, etc. Um, yeah, so twelve knights of the round table were sent by Arthur upon request to find the Grail, but only three, in fact, came even remotely close who took the quest as seriously. And so their names are most popularly will be Percival or Parsifal, and I'll talk about him in a sec. The other two were Galahad and Bors, um, but particularly Parsifal, right? And the quest took Parsifal. Um, all across the land. He was one of the youngest of the knights, and he just—he was virtuous, man. He was going to find this thing for his king. And so he's the one they thought came the closest. And so what he did was, during his journeys, um, he came across the castle of the maimed king, or the fisher king, who is the custodian of the grail. Now, the fisher king's a crazy character, right? Because he's, in fact, he's cursed to live in the barren lands around the castle and only capable of literally floating on a small boat in the moat of the castle, fishing for all of his days. Now, he's cursed, right? Allegedly due. Jeez, she'd get sick of fish. Oh, of course you would. Oh, of course you would. Fish again. You, the, but the thing is, he kind of... <laughs> yeah, but I think you don't really mind at that point. Like, I mean, you got nothing else, man, you know? It's better than, better than much else. So... I could see why, all comedy aside, that's... That's a curse, man. That's a tough Well, it gig. is, really. I mean, if you really think about it. And so, well, it was cursed because he had sort of, like, nefarious sort of, you know, tendencies. Oh. And so he was stricken, they think, in the groin region. And he's so cursed that he, in fact, couldn't even sit down properly. He was on a watch stand. list, wasn't he? Was he on a watch list? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He had a little uh, bracelet, you know, on his legs. <laughs> man. He really did. Oh. So, anyway... Um, so Percival approached the maimed king, and what he didn't realize, right, that you have to actually ask the king a very particular question. This isn't directly told to you at all. So while conversing with the P- fisher king, right, Percival can see the grail in the castle. He can see it. It's shining and it's glowing. It's like, oh, goodness me, there it is. And so the question that he asks the fisher king, he says, whom does the grail serve? And the fisher king says, Wrong question. Oh. <laughs> the grail disappears and it's never seen again. So he saw the damn thing and he wanders back to Arthur and just in absolute dismay and didn't find the grail. And so that's a real bummer. But so <laughs> that's a little tale of Percival and how close he actually got, right? To actually seeing the damn thing. But where's the grail now, my man? This is the thing. I'm not so telling drifted you. From- I am not telling you. <laughs> okay, then. Well, I'll try and explore just a little bit more if you don't mind. <laughs> so some say it was hidden by monks, hidden under the protection of a single bloodline for 500 or more years, saved by monks and or the Templars. But this was also a time, we're getting to the 16th century in England. Henry VIII decided he'd create his own church and just wandered around with his big belly and gout and burning everything he could find and slaying people and poking out eyes who's ever seen the original Bible. Yeah. So everything changed. So 
once that destruction happens, a whole lot of stuff sort sort of starts to disappear, man. Hostile but, takeover. Yeah, yeah, big time. Um, so getting a little bit more modern here, which is kind of lovely. One of the um, one of the places is uh, in Wales, right? There's a secret church called the Nanteos Mansion, where it's under the care of the last of a sacred bloodline. It could be any bloodlines, but this these were people that protecting this thing. And there's fragments of what they believe to be the Grail residing in this in this place. And people claim who have drank or touched the water in which this um, these fragments are soaking in to have been healed. Okay. And, you know, wonderful little tales of all that sort of stuff, right? But sh- this person is, um, she's actually uh, the last of her bloodline, and that's it. Once she dies, we don't really know what happens then. But um, Rosalind Chapel, and this is the last sort of little bit of my big old rant here, and it's a very exciting bit. Rosalind Chapel is featured in Dan Brown's book, um, The Da Vinci Code, about where it actually is, right? The Grail itself. And it's outside Edinburgh. And this was built, and this is where I love it, it was built by a man named William St. Clair in 1456, 150 years after the dissolution or execution of the Templars. But it's thought to be associated easily with the Templars due to some very interesting symbology all the way through the church, which is still there to this day. William, in fact, Sinclair was indeed the very first Grand Master of the Scottish Freemasons, so a beginning of a secret order that still exists to this very day. And wonderfully again, Rosalyn Chapel, named Redwater ah. due to a spring nearby, but like Glastonbury in the spring, runs red, again with Christ's blood, so the symbology continues. Man. Wow. So, but this place is incredibly important to the pagans and the Christians, at Freemasons and treasure hunters. All of these separate people are like, wow, look at the symbology here. It's a bit of everything. The motifs, the gargoyles, there's crosses, there's, uh, you know, real pagan, um, there's like the little green man and things like this all the way through it. It's, it's fascinating. But the best bit is William Sinclair's grandfather, Henry Sinclair, absolute Templar associate, allegedly took this incredible voyage, a very big, great voyage to the New World that would later be called the Americas, a whole 100 years before Columbus, inverted commas, discovered it. Or arrived there, right? And he went to a little place in North Americas, uh, in Canada, called Nova Scotia, which is New Scotland, um, to Oak Island, where many believe there are certain wild mysteries afoot, such as Captain William Kidd's treasure being buried there, who sailed all the way there to do that. The Grail may have been taken there by Henry himself, and even the Ark of the Covenant could very well be there. And they've discovered Viking artifacts from there too. Like, Columbus was nowhere near the first person non-native to get there. Like, not even close, man. Like, not even close. But there's this idea too that Russell and Chapel, in fact could very well be the grail right itself so mm. looking at what the grail could possibly be dude it could very well be a place of knowledge a place of enlightenment a spiritual idea right it's not a physical thing it's not going to give you eternal youth the eternal youth is in your mind because you've had this amazing discovery and enlightenment so with that idea perhaps the grail my bro really isn't meant to be found yes because the whole idea of the quest this is what it's like i want to find this thing it gives you hope but if you found it and someone says hey i've 
look, I got it. And like, oh, well, the quest's over, is it? I was like, yep, yeah, it is. I got it. That would that would be a very sad day, I think, my man, if you actually, you know, totally found the damn grail. So perhaps it's just not meant to be found, or it really is like the alchemist tale. Um, you go searching for ages and ages, and then you find it in your own backyard, but you never would have found it in your own backyard had you not gone searching. The old catch-22. Yes. So there we go, man. That's my understanding of some intrigue that comes with this artifact that I feel, you know, probably shouldn't be found because it would just destroy a whole lot of whole lot of hope, you know? Isn't it interesting? And thank you so much for that windy uh, story, which was just it, – it, you're right, it's – it's fascinating. And again, listeners, you, you're tuned into a podcast where we just simply don't talk about the weather. Um, when there's topics like this to be, you know, meandered through, bro, and especially so beautifully as you did then, it just oh, leaves man. me with that idea of saying, okay, perhaps this is the origin of many of the stories these days of, look, is what's more important, the destination or the journey? So you go yeah. on the quest, you're trying to find something, but the learning is done in the traveling. And yeah, the other point which I'm picking up your your vibing on is potentially, are we worthy? You know, should mm. we have this? Is this something that we're ready for or worthy? Um, that's it's all sub- yeah. subjective, my dude. You know, <laughs> it is, isn't let's, it? Uh, let's let the listener decide. But um, some important characters in that in that narrative. I mean, Arthur is representative potentially of so many things. I think the transferable idea is he is a motif for being virtuous. He is a Mm. motif for being worthy, Um, you know, hence the whole pulling the sword out of the stone and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, uh, but yeah, he's a character that is just, you know, he's, he's in the mists of Avalon and in the mists of history. You also alluded to the destruction of a lot of knowledge, you know, um, Shaolin yeah. temples being being burnt a couple of times, um, you know, libraries of, of Alexandria. Like just, yeah, it's very, very interesting to see what, how many cheat codes got burnt up um, or right, in potential yeah. insights. Well, how easy is it in that uh, day to be able to do that too? Because as we said, during the Dark Ages, there is no real written history. So it's all story. It's all told mouth to ear. So you can just kill a bunch of focus they don't yeah. talk about that again i'm like oh, okay <laughs> and 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 to be to be the devil's advocate there was written history but a tiny tiny percentage of the population um and you know genuinely in the term you know mm-hmm. of the word exclusive it was yes. all based around exclusivity yeah um so yeah dude fascinating but this is an important topic and I'm going to segue now if you don't mind me. Oh, please. Because this topic was considered so interesting and so important, we have the foundational ideas of a, you know, nasty group of baddies called the Nazis. Yes. And the question which we're building on today is sort of saying, well, what why are the Nazis such good villains? What what did they believe? Why are they in so many movies? Um and so, as as we referred to in the Raiders episode, um, we we gave you know just a sort of a nodding towards each other, passing in the hallway relationship to some of these characters and ideas. Um, and as we threatened, we're going to go a little bit deeper today. And it's really important to understand that some of those fascinating, elusive ideas um, that you just mentioned and went through G Fresh were taken as absolute truth by some of these individuals in this play. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. All right, my friends. So we return to a subject that we explored in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and that is and that is Hitler, the Nazis, and some characters called the Unnerb. So, just a reminder: Hitler's whole belief system stemmed from the concept of a hierarchy of race. This we know, and that the Germans descended from an Aryan master race. So, quote-unquote, master race. Now, the problem with this was his belief was staunch, but he lacked any sort of archaeological evidence. Um, And it was this missing evidence that became the primary concern of a one Heinrich Himmler. Himmler made it his personal mission to prove the existence of the Aryan race. So in 1936, he was invited to the home of Hermann Wirth, who I will, I reckon, generously describe as an eccentric historian. Um, Hermann Wirth proposed an expedition which would provide proof, substantive proof, um, of the origin of the Aryan race. Wirth had studied ancient symbols from all over the world and found... And again, I'm holding up, quote, fingers, repeating patterns. I would say very subjective (laughs) thinking already. Um, Although it was absolutely readily accepted that the symbols came from different cultures, um, you know, all over different times, Wirth chose to believe that they all originated at one source. Are you ready to get on the crazy train further, G-Fresh? Man, I got my VIP ticket and everything. It is catered for this one, so feel free to start eating. Um, Atlantis. He decided that Mm. that all of these symbols originated at Atlantis. Wow. Right. Okay. (laughs) Now, Herman, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I should apologize in advance, but it's, you know, it's what people believed. Um, Verth located Atlantis, and he located it to be a continent west of Portugal and southwest of Great Britain. He believed that it had been destroyed in a global catastrophe. So, look, there he, there he is in agreement with some other scholars um, and that a few survivors had set sail for the high places of the world. Now, it's a sort of a double entendre there with the high places of the world because it's suggestive of high places of culture, but also literally height because mm. this is the you know great cataclysmic flood. And so there, you know, according to Verth, these guys became the the progenitors of all culture around the world. So these guys were the equivalent of those, you know, pale, bald, tall, jacked dudes in uh, Prometheus. Oh, you know, yeah, my God, <laughs> yeah, right. That's, I can picture it too, actually. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, uh, arguably just as stupid. Uh, Verth's <laughs> vision was the solution to Himmler's problem, obviously. Um, which was by by reference Hitler's problem. So you know Himmler believed that Wirth was going to get him uh, absolute physical proof. So Himmler and Wirth then created a new department of the SS dedicated to <laughs> no less than rewriting history. Mm, that old that old chestnut, eh? <laughs> Yeah, 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 dude. You, you know, we talked about uh, old uh, Hank the Eighth and his hostile takeover. This is mm. this is just as ambitious. 
on a worldly scale, though, you know. Absolutely, yeah. my friend. Um, and so this department that was dedicated to the rewriting of history was called the Unanerb. Now, by the way, in 1945, the files of the Unanerb were found in a cave in central Germany. So when we say, where did, where did we get these ideas? This is, this is from the actual departmental files of the organisation itself. Right. Now, these guys launched expeditions all over the globe from Finland, Iraq, Tibet, and the idea was to was to catalogue a lost Aryan script to be used as the foundation, my dude, of a new religion. Mm. Now, we this is this is where the crossovers start with the Spielbergian Lucas limited film uh, world. So obviously in Tibet is where we sort of encounter the the guys at the start of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and you'll see some crossovers as we meander through. Uh, Verth traveled to Sweden and found prehistoric symbols and stated that this was the symbology and the sacred text of the Aryans. Um, and dude, this is where things go crazy. This is this just gets crazy. Oh, this is where it goes crazy. Oh my god, this is what they <laughs> yeah. believed. You know, yeah. Um, okay. This became the foundation of Himmler's new Germanic religion, dude, including sun worship and the return of the old gods. I kid you not. Jesus, the return of the old. Yeah, god. yeah, yeah. Wow. I wonder who the old gods they are talking about. Like, who's 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 gods? Who are they? Well, that would possibly be a whole nother episode because when I when I started to delve into that very question, it was like, holy, holy lord! But they uh, to to be reductive, they were doing largely the same thing as they did with reacquiring the world's knowledge. So they were kind of picking and choosing. But there were some gnarly, gnarly characters from like the Sumerian gods, Babylonian, like. And and pagan gods. So a lot of the Sumerian gods were not friendly gods. They weren't man. the yeah you know, the, they, the destructors yeah, and yeah. Yeah. goes of the Gozerian type. You'd, yeah, not not yeah. really dudes you want to invite to a uh, dinner party. So he began his new religion in the SS. There were SS weddings mm-hmm. with <laughs> pictures. Man, you can Google this with pagan solstice rituals. Goodness, man. Now this is this is how the enshrining of a concept of racial superiority was occurring. I wrote this down in a note to myself as I was as I was researching this. It's like this is how people wonder how how does an organization murder, you know, commit genocide, attempted genocide of an entire race of six million people? It's ideas like this. The the enshrining of racial superiority. So we yeah. remove the whole ethics and and we move to an idea of you know, only the strong survive. So that's the background of these crazy individuals that that feature so prominently. And I would also posit why it's that they make the most wonderful cinematic enemies because they're just these crazy entitled nutbars. And mm. I really want to make a point of saying that this is not all Germans or not all of the German army, but substantial uh, bat guana beliefs in the SS. And by the way, the plan was to start this program in the SS, then move to the regular army, then move to the regular German population, and obviously happening concurrently with the German Empire taking over the world. Mm. This is what these guys thought. My God. And they were getting really damn close, man. 
is the thing. That's the freakiest part, hey? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. If yeah. it wasn't for a few decisive things that happened in that time and a few failures, luckily – Goodness me! Absolutely, this is this is a fascinating time. This is mm. this is warfare that it, that is technologically ahead of the the rest. This is um, blitzkrieg sort of tactics in, in involving um, amphetamines and 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 soldiers that don't sleep for three days. Like, dude, this was yes, this was crackers. You're right. It, it was close. Yeah, like the 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 Nazi Wehrmacht or war machine was so ridiculous. The scientists were cutting it absolutely, and were the first folk to have rockets. Man, they had the first rockets happen. Yeah. You know, and you know we know of course that um, Werner von Braun and a couple of other ardent Nazi scientists captured by or saved by the Americans after World War Two were decisive in the creation of NASA and stuff like yeah. that. You know, yeah. So anyway, that's what's bubbling away in the background. Now let's now let's contextualize it to this episode because of course, mm. you know, these guys decided that they wanted the grail too. Mm. Of course they should have mm. the grail, right? Well, they wanted the, <laughs> they wanted the ark, they want all the powers, all the relics these, that can give them what power. What could go wrong? What <laughs> oh could go wrong? God. Give these guys the yeah. grail. Yeah. Surely they're worthy, yeah. Oh my god, yeah. But I wanted to talk about that idea of enshrining racial superiority because that's how they did think that they were worthy of the grail. Yeah. Yeah, and they were 100% right in their crazy eyes. That's correct. And also yeah. Now we're gonna now we're gonna meet another interesting nefarious cast member, mm. and this section is called Otto Rahn and the Grail. Okay, so we need one more scholar to enter this dark fantasy to get us to the Grail, and that man is Otto Rahn. And again, I use the term scholar. <laughs> You know, generously. <laughs> now, this dude is regarded by many historians as kind of like the first man in black. It's it's hard oh, to really, yeah. He's a dude wow. that he ascended into an air at traversing an area of society that was in between governments. You know, in between military, like just a yeah, just an interesting cat. And even if you mm. look at photos of him, he's wearing you know the black coat, the black fedora. Yeah, okay. So I would suggest that the the character of Arnold Tot in the uh in in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the whole shoot them. Shoot them both. Is somewhat based around these this guy. Now, Ran had a lifelong obsession with the Grail and in particular G Money, your your homie Parseval. Mm. Okay. Ran was inspired by Heinrich Schliemann, who was a legitimate archaeologist who used Homer's Iliad to locate the lost city of Troy in 1873. But he actually did that. He actually did that. Yeah, that's, yeah, crazy, crazy. Yeah, he did it. Now, um, Ran felt that he could do the same with the works of Parsifal or about Parsifal or by Parsifal. Mm -hmm. So his search took him to the French Pyrenees. Um, Grail country, it was referred to as Grail country, to find the fortress of Munzelvash. And I will apologise for me butchering all this pronunciation in advance. Now, he found the fortress of Monsegur and posited that it was, in fact, Parsifal's Munzelvash. Um, and the truth is that in the 13th century, Mon- Monsegur was the last stand of the Cathars. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm sorry, 
dipping into your expertise here a little bit, G-Money, but we could be reductive and say that these were very interesting guys in history and they were the legendary keepers of the grail. Yeah. So whether or not Joseph of Arimathea and some other sort of people were Cathars is, uh, you know, difficult to sort of ascertain, but some... Yeah, and I have a feeling we should definitely do a program based oh, upon no. this idea. You've, do you think oh, we should follow up? Perhaps? Made another no. promise, damn it. <laughs> Pull at that string, boys. Yeah. Pull at that That'll string. That'll be another six months, you know. <laughs> so the Cathars were the legendary keepers of the grail and they were mm. slaughtered. And when I mean slaughtered, they were, my Lord, they were wiped out by the Catholic Church. In 1931, Ran unearthed a local legend about a mysterious Cathar treasure. And the legend asserted that four Cathars scaled down the mountain and as they did and dropped into the mists of time and history, that's all that's, you know, concurs with about the time that you were talking about, G Man, where where the Grail kind of just disappears into history. Mm. Now Ran decided that the treasure must be the Grail, and that's you know, debatable amongst many scholars. And he spent months exploring passages and tunnels that, that riddle Montsegur. So, you know, much, much like your mates, the the 30 monks. Um, yeah, in Glastonbury, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, as he explored, he started to believe that the Cathars believed in a lost faith, an ancient lost faith. Now, I don't know if he was just cruising around sucking too many, you know, subterranean gas chemicals or if he was going <laughs> crazy or whatever it was, but this is where the same thing starts to happen again, my bro bro. Now, as he was wandering around and starting to believe in these ideas, um, he ran out of money. So he wrote a book in 1933 called The Crusade Against the Grail. The Crusade Against the Grail. Against the Grail, so this right. is where this is where he starts to reappropriate, redistribute ideas, starts to move the Grail away from Christian ownership. Okay, so Himmler read the book, loved it, and believed <laughs> that the Grail was an incredible source of power. Now, much like the inference in the book, it fit with his beliefs <sighs> that the Grail was not Christian. Guess what? It was Aryan. It was Aryan. Of course it was. Yeah. So he believed that Ran could quite literally hand him the grail. So Himmler commissioned Ran for a thousand Deutschmarks per month, which was a lot of, lot of coin back then, gave him a team. And of course, part of that is he had to join the, uh, join the Nazi party. And essentially, Ran spent the remainder of his years and his career going after this ancient Aryan relic that was not, in fact, Christian. And all a part of these writings and these beliefs were uh, uh, uploaded or updated into what Himmler was distributing to the SS. So, again, we have the reappropriation of history. We have the rewriting of history. So, Worth's Atlanteans become ancient Aryans, and so do... Duran's Cathars. This is how the Nazis basically instilled their superiority by reappropriating history. Now, this is nefarious, this is crazy, and this is harrowing. However, 
to me, it is interesting, G-Man, because again, we wonder how can such abominations mm. of behaviour be released into the human field of existence over history? This is how. Yes. Yes, It exactly. We've seen this a dozen times now, haven't we? Like, um, you know, it is the Henry VIII thing. It's uh, it's even the Christian thing, reappropriating all the pagan symbology as well. But you know what I find there interesting, man, and I'd like to just get your opinion on this. Otto Rahn's title of this book, The Crusade Against the Grail, what is the against about? Is that because he's going to, he wants to get the relic or the enlightenment or the knowledge of what it is and reappropriate it, take it from the Christian theology and appropriate it to his own beliefs. Why is it against? Well, basically, like I said, he's wandering around in the dark like bloody Smeagol um, and just come, comes upon the idea that the Cathars, who in most other literature and history are upheld as some of the most virtuous Christians, yes. uh, you know, for no pun intended, for God's sake, they got the <laughs> cup of grail. You know, they got the cup of Christ. They got the yeah. grail. They were the keepers. However, he decided that they were in fact not Christians; that they were Aryan. He decided that the history and the writings had basically rebranded it, and that's what that's what his book was saying. It was saying that yeah, okay. you know, this is this the reason that this is against the grail is you guys have rebranded it. It's not about Christianity at all. Mm. Now don't forget that 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 Himmler and Hitler, they did not like Christianity. And and I'm honestly not trying to make a joke here, but it, for them it was too Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Really very much so. It's just like you you guys are you guys are mental. Um, so it is an interesting thing. And I wonder sometimes with what's going on, and I don't want to touch it, but with what's going on today with you know a lot of contemporary distortions of history or or reinterpretations of history, I wonder if it's just part of the human condition and that's that's what we do. But um, this is this is unequivocally the meeting of probably four men that all shared a collective delusion that was in agreement. Like the Ananerb had incredible amounts of funding. Um, the SS was could, you know, write their own ticket. Yeah, yeah. And not one, not one person really in that upper echelon is going, oh, hang on, this is <laughs> yeah. a bit crazy. No, they all bit it, hook, line and sinker. I mean, Otto, Otto Rahn ended up, ended up a few, few years later going out into the forest and killing himself. Too much. Because guess what? Well, guess what? Sorry, forgot to say on my application form that I'm gay. <laughs> okay. That's a problem. That's a real problem. Yeah. This is another bit of the speculation. A lot of scholars are saying, look, Otto Rahn was a passionate guy who had run out of money and kind of, kind of was willing to potentially do anything to continue the search. There's kind of parallels with the Henry character here. Henry Jones cares more about the grail than he kind of does his own kid. Um, Elsa Schneider character here. It's it's a very interesting idea to say he wasn't necessarily a Nazi. He actually has a quote um, in one of his direct quotes was, look, Heinrich Himmler asked me to come for a meeting. What am I going to do? Say no? Mm. Oh, you go to that meeting, yeah. You you go to the yeah. meeting, and of course you say you say yes. And look, I'm really not wanting to be devil's advocate for a guy that really, you know, 
was was in the the opinion of this uh, this guy a jerk off, but it's a little bit. There's been some suggestions in history of just like, look, you start to you start to you know you start to borrow money from the mafia and things go badly pretty quickly. So yes, you can't get out, man. You're in. And this is where this is where now shifting shifting this crazy bus, if that's okay with you, towards the movie. Mm. Um, we see we see some interesting character development. We see some inter- interesting character design. And again, I would posit to you, dude. I reckon I reckon Spielberg and the writers they were scholars of history themselves and were diligent in in researching and potentially in the character design. So I would posit, much like much like the Arnold Tott character in the first one. Um, we have some nefarious individuals here, and so I reckon there's kind of a bit of Herman, Herman Verth. Um, there's a there's a bit in here in the Elsa Elsa Schneider character, dude. I I gave I gave the actress a bit of crap for not really you know making making her performance as gravitas you know, laden as I would have liked, but the character is really interesting. And you and I have talked about this before. Um, If you don't mind me revealing behind the curtain conversations where you were sort of positing, look, what was her motivation for handing, um, for effectively handing what was the wrong cup to Donovan? Um, And I posited, you were sort of saying, well, did she just get it wrong? Is she not that really that good at her job but i would posit it's an amazing moment in the film because she makes eye contact well this is my interpretation she looks at indy the both of them are so deep in the subject they both know that that's the wrong cup it's almost like her only way out to say look i've gone so deep in these guys they're they're horrifyingly evil i'm gonna give this dude the wrong cup Okay, now where do you stand? <laughs> I like I like what you're saying. I do, but there is a look that she gives Indy when he picks the correct cup that shows confusion. And as discussing with Joseph of Arimathea, his cup that he may have in fact caught the blood of Christ with, being a jewel encrusted chalice, exactly. is the one she might have just got the history wrong. So I'm not 100 percent convinced of that. I like the notion. I like the fact that she wasn't completely nefariously evil. Was actually going to get rid of this dude so she can get it herself. But I think she thought it really was that cup because of the other scriptures of Joseph being an aristocrat. So which co- I don't which know completely changes any redemptive arc for her and yes. any any sort of um, motivation for her. Yeah, I guess it could just be me going, oh, what a complete story arc that gives her a pathway to redemption. I didn't want to shut that down for you. I kind of wanted that to keep going, but I do feel it's a little different because I mean she's. She's not worthy, man. No. Of you know, we talked about the enlightened one, and and only the noblest and virtuous person gets it. She is not that person, despite the fact that she's crying at the book burning in that. You know, in the don't scene. you think that goes with my narrative though? She would know that Donovan is a prick. Yes, but she's she's still aligning himself with him for whatever reason. So she's still sucking upon the horrible teat of the Nazism, you know? So she's she's doing it anyway, regardless of whether she thinks it's right or wrong. She's still going along with it, whereas Indy wouldn't. He's not taking Nazi gold, man. He's like, absolutely not. I guess my point more was that she would know with with the depth of her study that this will kill him because he's a prick. 
But again, I'm probably trying too much to redeem that character. No, I know. But that look that she gives him, gives Indy, that is, when he just flagrantly finds that humble little cup right at the back, she looks confused. Yeah, you but know. she's a bad she actress. Doesn't, she, <laughs> she, she doesn't give him like a little wink at her. You got it. Yeah, man. but she could just you be know? going, oh, is it my line? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's also true. <laughs> Gee, I should have had pastrami for brunch. You know, could have been anything. That's You're right. right. That's right. But yeah, she's a tricky one because I don't think she's. I, I did think about it. The crying at the book burning. You know, yes, that makes it seem like she gives a damn. But she stays with the Nazis is the problem. That's she doesn't redeem herself ever, and she's the one that fluffs it for everyone. She, you know, the uh, the, the Templar Knight um, in the chamber, whom I believe the you know we were talking about the parallels being him being passable or in fact the maimed king himself being old and barely able to move could very well be the fisher king right yes and um but he says but the grail cannot pass beyond the great seal that is the boundary and the price of immortality they both hear it, and she wanders back going, Indy, it's ours! And she crosses the damn seal, and the place crumbles. Oh, my but God. But then again, is, is that the temptation of the vessel? Because there's a, moment, there's a moment when Indy watches Elsa fall to her death because she wants to covet that power. Yes. And he has to be talked out of it pretty convincingly or strongly by his dad. Yeah. I put it I put it to you that if his dad wasn't there, he would have tried to grab the cup and suffered the same fate. I agree. 100%. And that was it's an amazing shift too. You see the you see it the roles reversed within 10 seconds. He's reaching for her saying, "Don't worry about it." She falls, he's in the same position and reaching for it. He's like Which again, can I just point out, this is how you write a good movie. Oh, yeah. This is how you write wonderful characters because they've played a don't call me junior. Yeah. They've played off that the whole movie. Yeah. He hates it. Um, even the last joke. And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad? Please, what does it always mean? This, this Junior? That's his name. Henry Jones Junior. Like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. Maybe go home now, please. The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog? <laughs> Got a lot of fond memories of that dog. Yes, that's right. And Connery's, oh, dude, that's an actor. Yes. He can soften and just, in that delivery of that line, it's just softness and love, and but also, dude. There's power. Yeah. You feel? Yeah. Just an amazing moment in the film, and it snaps him out yeah. of a, a, a malaise. Um, I love that idea of what you're talking about, of, of, of Parsifal being that 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 knight. That mm. that sort of jumped out at me. And there's, a, there's an element of just like, oh, thank God you're here. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I wanted to say just a few more things on it. Just um, not even about the grail. We've almost steered it, steered the bus almost back to shore, and we can almost talk freely about the film, which is kind of lovely. Permission to freak, um, speak freely. I nearly oh, said freak freely. Freak freely. 
Uh, it's good old Freak Spreely here that, reporting for duty. That would totally be my rock name by the by the way if we start a I band. I think it's great. Yeah, it's got to be a punk band, Freak Spreely. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Um, I just think, like, just for me, like my big takeaway for the film, really. I mean, far from being the most rollicking, most wonderful Saturday matinee adventure with you know supernatural oh. involvement, oh. right? It's it's the most beautiful tale about. A son refinding love for his dad. Because most of the way through the film, Indy is frustrated by his dad. He's moving too slowly. He's he's got himself captured. He's done this and he's not paying much attention, you know. But it's there's two scenes in particular that really change the dynamic of their relationship and the ones when they've thought they've escaped from the Nazis and they're on the Zeppelin. And they're having that most beautiful conversation where Indy's saying, Hey, you never gave me any time. You're oh. always doing this and well, let's give it a quick listen, uh, shall we? It only goes for about a minute, so uh, just bear with. I remember the last time we had a quiet drink? Huh? I had a milkshake. Really? What did we talk about? We didn't talk. We never talked. Do I detect a rebuke? A regret. It was just the two of us, Dad. It was a lonely way to grow up, for you too. If you'd been an ordinary average father, like the other guys' dads, you'd have understood that. Actually, I was a wonderful father. Boy. Did I ever tell you to eat up, go to bed, wash your ears, do your homework? No, I respected your privacy, and I taught you self-reliance. What you taught me was that I was less important to you than people who'd been dead for 500 years in another country, and I learned it so well that we've hardly spoken for 20 years. You left just when you were becoming interesting. Dad, how can you? I'm here now. What do you want to talk about? Hmm? I can't think of anything. Then what are you complaining about? Work to do. Yeah. Well, I'm here now. What do you want? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. But also, also, it's it's been a while since we've seen. See that to me again to talk about acting chops. It's been a while since we've seen Harrison Ford be just completely alpha male. Yes. And 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 you know Connor is doing it with the with the raising of the eyebrow and the. It's just like wow. That's gravitas. And yes, he makes, you know, in Harrison Ford's performance, he diminishes and he kind of looks like a little kid. He's like, mm, yeah. you know. I know. Um, it's beautiful seeing him reassume the roles that I assume they had when, you know, they were all living together. But to build on to build on that, it's a two-way street because it's also Indiana Jones finding his own identity, which is which is – Amazing. And he's seeing the parallels in his dad. He's seeing his dad do pretty cool stuff and going, hmm. They, they are, in fact, both looking at each other going, nice one. You know, and yes. it's begrudging yes. in the first half of the movie. And that's just a pathos that just builds. It's just- It's beautiful, isn't it? And there's a couple of good examples where, you know, they do both disagree with each other at certain points. Like Absolutely. when Indy's shooting some Nazis and doing all this stuff and Henry looks over and he's unimpressed. But there's that moment in the sidecar when um, he pulls out the- uh, He rips off the flagpole and he uses it as a lance and Henry sees what's about to happen as he's heading towards the Nazi motorcycle trooper and there's like a- 
humble, excited smile Henry gives him, you know. But the reverse side is on the, uh, on the beach when they're escaping. And this is where Indy sees the respect for his dad for the first time when he uses the birds to take out the Messerschmitt. And then he says that beautiful line from Charlemagne. Let my armies be the rocks and the trees and the birds in the sky. And it's just lovely, man. And we don't even care about the awful CGI. It's just like, no, this is. (laughs) I'm serious. It's like this is because because that's probably we might we might slightly get to the gripe section towards the end, and it's going to be a pretty short list for me. But yeah, I'm going to flag that. It is, you know, he starts off quite bumbling, and by the end, he's actually in charge. I mean, you know, shooting the tail off the plane. John, I'm sorry. They got us. <laughs> or smashing smashing his kid over the head. They come through the door, Dad. Yes. Oh, yes, of right. course. <laughs> yeah. Or dropping the zippo on the ground and burning down the mansion. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a disaster yeah. merchant. You know? Yep. Yeah. And and I mean it's just it's just so it's got so much depth. It's a like you said, <clears throat> it's a cereal, it's a it's a matinee, it's a it is a blockbuster you know, of, of its time, um, but it's a commanding film school level of acting yes. and film school level of directing, writing, and cinematography. Because once yes. again, oh, my God, here I go. It's shot brilliantly. He shoots action, oh, for mine, right, almost better than anyone. I get all my information. The shot's... You know, he uses, a, you know, reverse shots, wide shots. He uses continuous shots beautifully. I just get the idea. Again, I could mute the picture and I could follow the story. And not many dudes can pull that off, my bro. I agree. And there's a, there's a, it's just a, a Spielbergian pacing. All the beats are right. Just as something feels naturally like it needs to come to a close, it does. And then something unexpected and brilliant happens. And it's, it's rife with cliches and tropes. But... They'd invented half of them. It's the whole point. So I'm never once bored, even though I've seen this flick, dude, upwards, right, 50 times, not even a joke. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm still intrigued by it, and there's still bits like, oh, the next bit's coming up, and I'm excited, you know? It's just fantastic. And I was really surprised when you said that that whole motorcycle scene was shot post. Man, that's one of my favorite sequences. Well, they just felt like it needed a little bit more. They were like, look, it needs something to transition. Yeah. um, And it needs needs more, basically more fodder to develop their relationship. And it was, yeah, yeah, it was very, very, very clever. Um, (laughs) The cameo by Hitler, well, the guy playing Hitler. (laughs) Yes, yes. And he signs the Grail Diary. Oh, my God. That's a hell of a yeah, scene, isn't yeah. it? And and it, yeah, look, my God. it is it is an interesting it is an interesting idea to sort of go, okay, who are some of these characters in in history? Like um, Donovan Donovan reveals his hand gradually, but on a rewatch, you know, he's he's a slippery slippery turd of a human being from the first scene he's in. You know, it's just like yeah, something off about this dude. Um, yes. And again, Indy has a childlike zeal that parallels his father. You know what I mean? I, almost in that moment, you'd reckon Indy had done a few enough laps of the block to go, uh, who is this dude? But the moment he takes out the tablet, the glasses go on and he's just into it, you know? Well, Elsa calls it as well and says, Just like your father, 
Giddy as a schoolboy. Yes. And that's what I love. There's like a palpable excitement that actually happens yeah. in this. And yeah. you can't help. It's like contagious laughter. When you see someone laughing, yeah. you eventually join in. You just can't even help it. You get that excitement. You yeah, get that. Yeah. This, Look, man. and, and if, I, if I had to borrow an idea from one of my favorite prod podcasts, a shout out to the Rewatchables, best performance of the movie, or as they would say it, who won the movie? Are you asking? Yes. Oh, that's a question. That's why my eyebrows oh. went up. Oh, is that what happened? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was. Yeah, Ready? Good. I'll do it oh, again. Good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that looks so painful. Um, look, man, I think just because I think the finest introduction, I think it's uh, Sean Connery, man. Great. I just love his bumbling nature, but I love the glints of absolute brilliance where it's like, oh, he is absolutely worthy of being doing this quest. And then by the end of the whole bumbling, he is the voice of reason at the end. He says to Indiana, let it go. And he spent his whole life looking for this thing and he's happy to bequeath it. I love it. I you love know? That. He yeah. probably, in terms of acting, has to has to go through the most al- alchemical shift, doesn't he? Yes. Um, and he pulls it off at every, at every juncture. Um, I want to say Harrison Ford. It's an obvious thing to say Harrison Ford, but I'm yeah. going to be a bit controversial here. And I'm Ooh, going Alison Duty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, the surname is apt, um, bro. Uh, bro, I'm going to go River Phoenix. Oh, rad man! And I know I shouldn't. Be, I know I shouldn't be able to because he's not in it for long. But it's uncanny. Yes, yes, it is. It is, and that whole segment, you know, when he says. That cross is an important artifact. It belongs in a museum. It's just him. And that beautiful segue, in fact, that I, I wanted to talk about, well, I think it might have been an hour and a half ago now, to be <laughs> honest, but when, when the, you know, the, the, the treasure hunter, um, yes. the indie guy who's sort of inspiring, goes to his home and he's like, You lost today, kid. But it doesn't mean you have to like it. And he puts the hat on him, and then it segues, oh, and he looks and up straight into the boat scene, and there he is. And Indy gives this radiant smile, and he gets punched in the face. Oh, and it's God. the same artifact. It's exactly, just, yeah, yeah, just beautiful. The cross yeah. of Coronar. We just love how that you know that prototype Indy is is just sort of going. I kind of like this kid. He's got a lot of sand. Yeah. He's yeah. just put us through a lot of trouble, and we wouldn't have got him unless we cheated at the end. That's right. That's right. And it's a beautiful thing. And that's like, I, I don't know, I kind of, I'm intrigued by that fella, to be honest, as well. The guy who gave him the hat, who is clearly Indiana's um, point of reference and whom he then becomes. Well, it is. A, it's an amazing thing. It is an interesting thing. Like, if you, if you had to have a gripe at the character, like, Indiana Jones is, he's kind of a- a grave robber. <laughs> He's kind of, yeah. you know, like even in even in the first Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's it it could be argued, and and it. You know, it's pretty clear that, you know, he's grabbing it and putting it in museums, but it's like, dude, you're a white guy grabbing stuff from a different continent and taking it back <laughs> to right. a bloody white museum. But for the virtuous thing of keeping it in a museum. That's you know, right. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah. so let's, you know, let's 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 call it for what it is. Like, yeah. yeah, he's a wonderful character, but I do think that's part of his transition all over, you know, throughout the, the three films is that he moves from, you know, like a rogue to you know he's someone like I said more more virtuous towards the end, yeah. Um, yeah, I just the last thing I'm going to say about River Phoenix is even the way he does the shout. 
you know, it's Harrison Ford. It's like, <laughs> yeah. dude, you are. Yeah. Um, I'm saddened. Like uh, that that dude was just going to tear it up. Like that performance alone just said to me that that's that guy's going to fly to the moon. But he had a lot to do for River Phoenix in my mind, man. So yeah. favorite scene, my friend, and this is another different, a difficult question. But if you if I had to had to compassionately prod you for for one favorite scene, and and oh. you know. I know, oh, I'm geez. sorry. I deliberately didn't warn you about this. Yeah, okay. Look, it's um yeah, all right. I like being put on the spot like this. But I have to say, like, um, the set pieces, man, that Spielberg puts together are just so incredible. And when Indy's facing off a small platoon of Nazis on horseback, yes. pretty amazing. And he's running circles around the tank and he puts a rock in one of the cannons. <laughs> I knew you'd say this hundred percent. You know, oh it's so good. And then he's hanging by the the, by his uh, his satchel strap oh. and the and the tanks getting closer to the cliff, it's just fantastic, dude. I can't pass that up. And then they've got that classic thing we talked about in the um, in the action episode, the trope where the dude goes off the cliff and you think he's dead, and then he reappears at last minute. But this one's done even better, so good because they're all sitting there lamenting that he's dead down there, and he's climbed up behind them and he's standing there looking over as well with them, and they haven't even realised he's and there. And it's great too because so he's good. so clearly dazed, like he's only half with it. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. they and then they sort of yeah. see him and they go, oh, all right, mate, yeah. let's go. And he's yeah. like, oh. come on, let's go. And he collapses <laughs> and his hat blows in front oh, of him, mate. And, uh, and you know, you know. know, there was the assistant standing just out of shot, getting ready to throw the hat in on cue. The hat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely right. beautiful. Yeah. Well, what about you, my, my dude? My dude, it's probably it's probably the my soul is prepared, Doctor Jones. How is yours? The oh, boat sequence, the boat chase, dude. Yeah. Are you crazy? And just this this beautiful, like, sort of, you know, 40s, 30s timber boat is just getting yeah just eviscerated by these giant propellers. And, uh, you know, old mate from the cruciform sword is at peace. He's like, dude, I'm oh. good. I'm literally good. How are you? He's not panicked a bit, yeah. is he? He's just laying there. That's fine. And Indy's just like, ah, oh, crap, like. Yeah, this dude's yeah. not negotiable. Oh, I, I love it. I really loved that, and 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 then how you know begrudgingly at the end of that sequence, the guy gives him respect, and he because he's really saying, "Who are you, and why do you want it?" Like, ask yourself, and it's probably the first point in the movie where he's just like, "Reflect on it. Why yes. do you want it?" Yep. You know, do you know yeah, what? Really you're, good point. Do you know what you're fooling with here, bro, bro? Mm. Um, yeah, really good point, man. So I'll that would that. that would probably be you know my my. Number one moment. Yeah. All right. To finish with, any gripes? Do you have any grievances? Do you have any? Yes. Yes, I do. And there's one glaring one that um, I'm sure we're both going to agree on is where Elsa and Indy are attempting to get themselves into the fortress in Austria. Yes. And the mansion. And their decision in order to do so is to play a little bit of role play. Yeah. And so they swap clothes. Indy walks in in the big old sort of poncho thing and a beret and pretends to be a Scottish lord yes. with the worst Scottish accent you've ever heard. Now battle off and tell Baron Brunwald that Lord Clarence MacDonald and his lovely assistant are here to view the tapestries. And I don't think he was trying to do a, you know, a real one. He's obviously not very good at this, but I thought that was a bit, a bit hacky for me and I didn't really enjoy it. Well, so, yeah, devil's advocate in me. Is it the actor doing it deliberately badly? You know, is it? That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, because we know, 
Yeah, it can't. It can't work. But I, I do agree with you. It's just like that accent is terrible. But then again, yeah. is it not meant to? Because he's not an actor. He's an archaeologist. Well, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And the butler doesn't believe it for a second. This is a castle. And we have many tapestries. And if you are a Scottish lord, then I am Mickey Mouse. That's my point, I guess. Is it meant to be hacky? But I know what you mean. It just does come off as schlocky. It doesn't um, fit with the rest, no. really, you know, yeah. No. And and ironically, it's the only thing that survived from Lucas's, you know, eight-page treatment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and of it's, course. And it kind of yeah. sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, mine would be the fact that Marcus Brody, the betrayal of Marcus Brody, mine would be that, you know, Den- Denim Elliott, just such a – no problem with his performance. He he handles everything that he's given, but it's almost like has Marcus had a stroke? Henry, the pen. What? Why don't you see? The pen is mightier than the sword. You know, since, since the other instalments, because, you know – you oh, you mean it's a bit more bumbly? You oh, mean, absolutely. Like, oh, okay, right. Now, yeah. the, com- the comedic scene works in terms of like... He's got a two-day head start on you, which is more than he needs. Brody's got friends in every town and village from here to the Sudan. He speaks a dozen languages, knows every local custom. He'll blend in, disappear. You'll never see him again. With any luck, he's got the grail already. And then the hard <laughs> yeah, yeah. cut to... Uh, does anyone here speak English? Or even ancient Greek? Oh, water, no, thank you, sir. No fish make love in it. Thank you so much. No, I don't thank you. No, I really don't want Thank you very much. No, thank you, madam. I'm a vegetarian. Does anyone understand a word I'm saying here? It's yeah. comically funny, but it's like, yeah. hang on, dude. He's he's tight. In 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 Raiders, it's almost like there's a there's a clear delineation mm. of oh, he's the boss yeah i yeah. know this and i should again to borrow from the wonderful podcast um the rewatchables it's only a nitpick it's not a deal breaker there's no yes. deal breakers in it for me this movie but yes. um it is a bit like what happened dude did you hit your head or you hit the drink a bit too hard yeah because he's kind of blah, 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 the rest of the movie whereas i think in the first one he's more of an asset he becomes this bumbling mr magoo liability in a way i don't know that's a really good point like when he wanders into indy's lecture theater in raiders he's like indy's boss in a way or advisor he's like this is you know this is what you do and yeah he did change radically actually yeah, yeah now that i think about it yeah really good pickup yeah. man but i mean that's mm. I mean, I don't I, I think the only other the only other bit tonally that I want to check in with you, how do we feel about the fact that Elsha Snyder has had a whole lot of Jones? <laughs> There's something sort of charming about it. It's sort of like Oh, in a way, I mean, you know, she if if she were to be the protagonist, right, we're following Elsa's journey, she's killing yeah. it, man. She's killing it. And she's going to get information about the Grail, whatever the cost, and she don't care. She can use her sexuality if she likes. She clearly did. But, yeah, it's, it's a pretty humorous sort of thing, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, obviously, yeah. the interesting thing is, like I said at the start, Connery ad-libbed it. It wasn't planned as part of the part of the story arc. It feeds into me. I don't know why I'm building so much more into the character, but it sort of feeds a little bit more into me that, like, she's an agent, as in she's potentially not just an architect. Architect, yeah. That's as in, I mean. she's potentially exactly. not just an archaeologist. Like, she she might be more philosophically aligned. She's, um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I agree, man. That's and that's that's the thing, I think, you know, and she knew where Indy was she was going to meet you know, he was programmed, programmed. He was, you know, going to meet Dr. Schneider and he thought Dr. Schneider was a man. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's this beautiful girl in a, you know, sort of regimented Nazi-ish sort of propaganda outfit, you know? like I kind of like it. like it. Like I've heard a few people sort of go, oh, it's a bit. I kind of like it because it's about control. She's in charge. Like she's mm. manipulating these dudes. She is absolutely in charge. Um, yes. Gaining, gaining advantage in intel any way she can. Um, That's right. Just stumbling at the last at the last line, um, where you know, as you've outlined in history, many many people have. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And man. the last question, you know, I'm going to ask you, my friend, can you give this a score? What's ten? The score? Simple. I'm going to cut you off straight up, man. It's is it better than Raiders? I'm not going to. Well, if you want a direct comparison, it's hard to do so. I think there's more Saturday matinee action set pieces that I really gravitate to. As I said, like my favorite action bit. Having yep. said that, too, the scene in the library where they're discovering where the tomb could be, and you decide yeah. to smash. Come on. That's great. Yeah. I love feeling like I'm discovering something as the character's discovering it too. So they're different bags of fish. I think they're parallel to my knowledge, man. I think they're parallel. Right. Yeah, great. I do. And again, um, it certainly doesn't come under a gripe in, in for me or for you. However, that was one of the major criticisms leveled at it, if anything could have been, was that it was too derivative. It was yeah. basically the same movie, same characters, even the desert scenes with the, you know, the tank and all that sort of stuff. That's right, yeah. Um, for me, it's a 10. Love it. For me, it's not necessarily better than Raiders because you can't do it without Raiders. Part of this is just trading in on the good will, the love for the characters that we have. But, um, yeah, my bro, it's a, it's a 10 for me. And, yeah, those playing at home, check it out. Have a look. Dude. Have a watch. The idea of this episode is think about some of the nefarious bat guana theory that sort of fuels the motivation i guess of some of the some of the bad characters in this movie um but also yeah just let us know because yeah. gosh it's fun it really is thanks p boss for the uh the the long discussion and and you know opening my eyes to a lot more of the uh you know the nefarious nature of the nazism we did discuss it a bit in the raiders episode well you did in particular but then highlighting some more of this with a whole other relic but still being relevant it's just crazy so it's yeah, same, all interwoven you know same same idea yeah. different bucket yeah it's that you know there's that old saying about knowing just enough to get yourself into trouble that's exactly morons morons exactly well look i think we've delivered ourselves back to the crazy bus no we haven't yeah. to the shore we made We're it on the shore unreal thanks very much to all the players at home who've uh, sat with us through this today it's been an absolute pleasure and we're going to do it again of course hit us up on the fb and on the emails, blah, 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 blah. And um, we will respond to you. And P-Boss, it's been an absolute pleasure as always, man. And um, Oh, yeah. I look forward to another meandering water cooler conversation very, very soon. Absolutely, my brother. This Thank you been so trick. much. Toodles, everyone. Well, later, skaters. See you next time. This is the Manchaldian Candidate with G-Man and P-Boss. Scoot. Out.